Look, I don't know how many times I have to tell you David? we don't want to buy a conservatory. And honestly, even if we did, the consequences of putting one David. on an all-purpose vehicle that can fly, float, dive, and dig through any environment in the universe, no matter how hot or cold, would be utterly disastrous. David. I mean, did you not hear what happened to Virtual Colin in episode no, four? David, that, you do know that we're a space science audio drama documentary hybrid podcast, don't you? Well, listen, I'll tell you where you can stick your next conservatory. David. It's somewhere that sounds like the name of one of the ice giants in our solar system, and I'm not talking about Neptune. David. What? Oh, hello, Matthew. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought you were someone else. Yeah, I figured. Uh, go and stick Colin on for me a sec, please. I need to ask him something. Oh, if it's about that Paris Hilton CD, then I can assure no, you that No, no, it's not that. Um, I'm in a bit of a hurry, so could you... All right. All right, all right, patching him through now. Matthew? Hello. Uh, listen, wee bit awkward, but I'm outside the hobby shop at the moment. Mind all my orc miniatures went missing, and I said I was just going to start collecting a new army instead of replacing them all. All right. So I've heard those brown dwarfs are really cool. Thing is, though, I, I can't find them anywhere in the shop. Don't really want to ask the guy who works there. You know what he's like. Anyway, you know the place like the back of your hand, so whereabouts are they? Brown dwarfs. Aye. Uh, I forget. You're one of the crew members who doesn't have a degree in astrophysics. What's that got to do with anything? Okay. Uh, have you still got a phone number for Alex Scholes at St Andrews Uni? Uh, aye. But um, Alex is far too cool to I be in there. I to go and pay him another visit. <laughs> right. Fine. Thanks very much for your help. Oh, and seeing as you're at the hobby shop already, could you grab me a box set between... Ah, Hostile Worlds, Episode 8. In Search of the Brown Dwarfs. And I guess we'll be taking a trip back up to the observatory in St Andrews, won't we? Let's see if our pal Alex can throw some light on the subject. Brown dwarfs are sort of in between stars and planets. So the, the thing is that for thousands of years, when you look up at the night sky and when you look at the objects that you see there, you distinguish stars from planets. Um, you, and you have a very clear delineation between those two categories. They are different in many ways. In fact, when they are young, they mostly look like stars because they are still warm. And as they get older, they cool down and become more and more comparable to planets. So they tell us something about stars and they also tell us something about planets on the other side. That's what makes them special. And if you count brown dwarfs, you find out they're not rare, they're not exotic or anything like that. They're a normal product of nature. There are 100 billion brown dwarfs in our galaxy alone, compared to a few hundred billion stars. So they're fewer than stars, but they're incredibly common. So of course, you want to find out something about them. So in themselves, they are something that is underexplored and underinvestigated, and therefore uh, we are interested in them. So a brown dwarf is a sphere of gas, like a star but it has a much lower mass than a star. It's about less than 8% the mass of the star. And that means it doesn't have an interior energy source. The technical definition is, is it's unable to sustain stable hydrogen fusion. What that means is it doesn't shine like a star on its own. It just glows. A defining criterion for a star like the sun is that it produces energy by fusing hydrogen to helium in its core. And that balances the, the radiation, the output. So that's what defines a star. It sits there, it produces energy, and it shines for long stretches of time without disappearing. 
That's why we are fortunate to live near the sun. It's uh, Every morning it's going to look the same because there's energy production going on. But that energy production relies on very high temperatures and pressures in the core. Fusion processes are tricky to do on Earth because you need to generate very high pressures and very high temperatures. That's why we haven't been able to really do this in a cost-effective way. But that's why we don't have fusion reactors yet that solve our energy crisis. So stars solve this by being very massive and there's lots of mass that's pushing from the outside. If you go down in mass and if you reduce the mass more and more, at some point you reach a limit where this doesn't work anymore. The temperatures and pressures in the cores are not sufficient anymore to ignite fusion processes and to maintain it. And that's the regime of brown dwarfs. They resemble stars when they're young, and that means they, their gas is hot. You have mostly hydrogen, you have mostly atoms, and you have simple molecules. But as, if, as they get older, as they cool down, more complicated molecules will form in the atmospheres, and then you start seeing clouds. So below temperatures of something like 2,000 degrees, cloud formation sets in. And at the beginning, these are going to be clouds that are incredibly different from the clouds that we are familiar with. They're not water clouds you're going to start seeing crystal clouds, complicated condensates that start raining down, not on the surface of the brown dwarf, because there is really no surface, start raining down deep into the atmospheres where they evaporate, and then this starts the, the material from which the clouds are forming rises up again, forms new clouds, and they come down again. There's a cycle going on of cloud formation and destruction. And then as time goes by, brown dwarfs will cool down and get colder and colder, and that means the structure of the cloud, the nature of the atmosphere and the chemistry of the cloud will change dramatically. So you go from atmospheres that are dominated by simple molecules and no clouds at all to atmospheres that are completely covered in clouds, to atmospheres where the clouds are disrupted again, where the cloud decks are shifting from the top to the bottom, where the structure is changing. That's the same object that is going through these um, phases. And at the end you end up with something that is like Jupiter, you end up with something like a giant planet. But in between is a long cycle of different cloud formation. And that means you can use, you can use brown dwarfs. They're incredibly helpful to study the formation of clouds, to study weather, extreme weather, in extreme conditions, and to study how it changes in different temperature domains. That's, that's one of the reasons why brown dwarfs are today very popular. They give us sort of templates to study atmospheres and weather and climate in extreme environments. And, and because it's sometimes hard to study planets, Extrasolar planets, for example, sit very close to their stars, so you always have to compete and have to get rid of the radiation from the star. Brown dwarfs are in isolation, they are far away from any stars, so you can basically treat them as laboratory for atmospheres of planets and study weather on these objects. And today astronomers work with meteorologists and use models that are comparable to the, to the models that we use for climate change on Earth to model and understand the atmospheres of brown dwarfs and planets. And this is a fertilizing collaboration, so one side contributes something, the other side learns something. And that's what makes brown dwarfs interesting for many people from the planetary side. Brown dwarfs are called brown, ultimately because we are running out of colors to name things. They are red dwarfs, these are stars that are cool and red. The smallest stars are called red dwarfs. The sun is a yellow star, and if you go further down in temperature, you go to cooler and cooler objects, objects become redder and redder. That's a normal physical law. If you make an object cooler, it will become redder. And that's something we're all familiar with. If you take a piece of metal and hold it into a fire and heat it up, it will first become dark red, then orange, and then at some point, if you keep heating, it will become blue. It's very hot. So brown dwarfs, because they're cool, 
will start off red and then as they get older and they cool down they will become redder and redder and redder and at some point you don't see light anymore from them with your own eyes. So an, an old brown dwarf will be black with maybe some dark red violet patches on its surface. Because they don't have an interior energy source they will cool down as they get older, they will dim and then gradually disappear and we can't observe them anymore when they're very old. That's the defining property of a brown dwarf. They change over time in contrast to stars, which sit there sometimes for billions of years without changing significantly. You can't land on them. They're not solid like planets. Brown dwarfs are spheres of gas, but if they get older and cool down, you might develop parts that are liquid. But temperatures is not that much of a problem. If you travel to a brown dwarf and you approach them with your spaceship, and if a brown dwarf is sufficiently old, it's going to be cold. So you have to not necessarily withstand the heat, you have to be able to get into a cold gas environment. It's a bit more like the exploration of Jupiter and Saturn. If you think about a cold, old brown dwarf, you have to think about approaching Jupiter from its backside. The front side is different because it's illuminated by the, by the sun, it's, it's warmer. But if you approach it from its backside, that's sort of what you expect to see when you're approaching a brown dwarf. It's dark, you see cloud structures, it's glowing mostly in the infrared and then you're entering a very cold, turbulent atmosphere. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Hostile Worlds, a podcast created and presented by the podcast host. With special thanks to Dr. Alex Schultz of St Andrews University, whose voice you heard alongside that of David Alt and Colin Gray. On our next episode, the crew are going to be flying the tardigrade right into the sun itself. That will really test the invincibility of the ship, and uh, between you and I, I'll probably just stay here on Earth for now in case they all die a, a very painful death. But anyway, if that doesn't happen, here's a, a final question for you. Do you want to get your hands on some fancy Hostile Worlds merch? Well, if so, you're in luck, because we've just set up an online store in association with TeePublic. We've created some really cool-looking t-shirts, hoodies, posters, mugs, stickers, and much more. There's even Hostile World's phone covers in there now, though I think Sarah's having a bit of trouble finding one for her Nokia 3310. Anyway, the thing about TeePublic is that the quality of the stuff is excellent. You know, traditionally these merchandise services, they just print these big square blocky type cover arts on their products and they, they peel off or fade after the first couple of wears or washes. But this tea public gear is going to have you looking like the coolest astronaut on Titan long after you've bought it. And the pricing's superb value for money too. So an easy way to find this gear is to go to hostileworlds.net slash shop. All good? Right. I'm away to think up more t-shirt designs. Might even do a really puerile one about Uranus. I know, I know. Hostileworlds.net slash shop. We'll see you on the next episode.